0: So at the very beginning, we said some words about game theory. Let's talk about why we said those words.
1: That's a good thing to bring up, Cavour. (laughs) Good job. Good job, Cavour. (laughs) So, yeah. So game theory as it relates to actual game design. So um, I'm talking about the game theory that is the study of interactions between multiple parties in which each party's payoff is affected by the decisions made by the others. So the 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 most common example is the prisoner's dilemma. And what that is, is you have two people who are going to go to jail for some time, depending on whether they confess or keep quiet. And if they both keep quiet, they both go free. Uh, if they both confess, they go, do five years in jail. And if one of them confesses, the other one will get 10 years if they keep quiet. And so the idea is you're trying to figure out what's the best move for each player of the game, each prisoner, um, independent of what the other prisoner is going to decide. And so in that case, it's keep quiet and you both do five years. And the reason that is, is because you don't know whether or not you're going to get zero or 10, and 10 is definitely worse than five. So you're better off going with. The confess and get the five years and avoid the possibility of getting double. That's generally how, how it works out. But the way it applies or, to
2: game design is or that was you... that that's a philosophical issue. That's not anyway. Yeah, continue, Rob. Okay. <laughs> the the uh, but the way it applies to game design
1: is that instead of having. Um, multiple parties, uh, of, of decision makers, you have, um, ways of structuring incentives. So that, that the prisoner's dilemma is all about who, what the rational incentive is in that situation. And you, we have these same elements in, in RPG design where we have a set of choices to make, uh, the players have a set of choices to make. And they're going to usually go with the one that they're most incentivized to go with. And we can adjust that incentive in order to guide the players down the road of the game uh, of the down the road of the experience we want them to have. And so my my ideas about the way this influences um the first principles are it really helps to understand how you're incentivizing your players in the in whatever you're designing and how to adjust and account for those and my question to all of you is do you do this in your game do you do you have do you have an idea of where your incentives are and if so, how do those feed into your uh, main design goals or principles?
3: Yeah, I do at least. Okay. and I mean, from the very start, you kind of have to have incentivization to, you know, make sure that people do stuff that you want them to do. One of the biggest things that I'm sure I've mentioned this on a previous episode, maybe it was one of our off leaks. Was the concept having to do with um incentivizing players to actually you know role play during combat, for example, mm-hmm. using experience bonuses to people that role play doesn't really work that well, but I found out works a lot better is mm. incentivizing them by making it so when you you know describe your actions in combat it actually has an impact on what happens. Things like that. It doesn't have to be an incentivization in the sense of you get bonus experience for this. You get bonus money. Sometimes it's just it actually changes things in a way that's beneficial. And sometimes it doesn't even have to necessarily be beneficial just to let you know that something has changed because of what you've done. Mm -hmm. So I I would say that,
4: yeah. I'm a big proponent of of self-narration also and it's been central to how my game plays for a long time so like the more information about an event that is given is more informative for everybody else around the table and they can there's more more for them to work with so you know actions need to resonate forward in order to have impact I mean that's incentivizing the situation not so much mechanically the gameplay at that higher level.
3: It it kind of is. It depends on how embedded into the mechanics of the game itself it's actually built into. Like you can actually include that into like the actual mechanics. But in general like I have Things all throughout the game that's like that. Like, I want to have, for example, the GM to actually take a direct role in the outcome of what's going on, but also, you know, actually playing as a character that has their own personal agenda and stuff. And it's not just incentivizing the GM by making things easier for them. It's by actually including a character for them that has abilities and such that alters the outcome of the game. And uh, also, strangely enough, alters uh, what kinds of things the players actually get access to. Like, uh, depending on the character that, or at least the character archetype that the uh, GM is playing they can actually affect like uh what kind of loot and enemies that their players are running into and such it just alters the very nature of the game and that can incentivize them like substantially
1: yeah and so so what, what's the, what are the, what are the best ways we can investigate our games incentive structures? I don't, because there's, there's a, there's, there's the theory craft of it where you can take a look at the, the, you know, the numbers you're plugging into, into the game and um, kind of know what a good pick is at a particular point. Um, but how do we, how do we incentivize that? that narrative part Um, where where we can't do the math
4: exactly. Well, the narrative and the the incentive for narration is very rarely mathematical. It's experiential and narrative. So, but it can lead to mechanical advantage. So, like, if the character says they're going to attack with their sword in such and such manner, the GM can say, okay, you're going to get this bonus for it. Like, when... That's that's an obvious incentive that is there, but the players may or may not, you know, be able to ex- to rely on it every time. But the incentive is gaining that bit of narrative advantage rather than mechanical advantage
1: okay and where where do we draw the line in there though because that one that's always been a tricky thing for me to know like where when do you know that you've given the player too much rope in that case like too much slack because it's it's a really tricky thing to like pull the brakes on that without without uh, like some sort of mechanical cutoff or without potentially being unfair
4: well at, at some point even even without any tangible limits you have to know the tonal and thematic boundaries of the gameplay okay so if a character says that they're gonna jump 40 feet in the air and death from above somebody that's that's Breaking the narrative if the if they're not actually capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So what if what? Okay, so
1: what if it's not that extreme though? What if it's you know so you can do something like that's vaguely implausible but kind of you could maybe picture it. But is that for you? Is that where the dice come in, or is that sort of like where you where you pull back and say uh, no? There's there's no. You've reached the end of what you're capable of at that point.
4: At, at some point, someone has to exercise some judgment to say whether or not it's feasible or impossible. Mm-hmm. So, at somebody, at some point, somebody has to rule that no, that's not possible, or okay, you can try that. Roll some dice, mm-hmm. or if it's trivially easy, maybe they say, okay, that just happened, right. Okay. So that there's yet you can't play a game like a tabletop or BG without somebody exercising judgment. You know, sometimes the judgment comes from the designer, but the designer can't know everything that's gonna that's possible. So someone at the table has to be empowered with that. Sometimes yeah, that's not you, just one person. You think that can be distributed?
5: Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. No, I think that, like, well, with Praxis, the entire bounds of what is possible within the game is distributed from the get-go. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, in whatever game you're playing, the idea is that everyone buys into the story. Mm-hmm. Um and whether that comes from one person who is the, the gatekeeper of sorts of the the physics of the world, or if everyone buys into, no, this sounds like uh, a fantastic way to end the story. Like you do the the dive from above, like flying, leaping, multiple kick attack into the air. Like sure, let's do it um, because that's what everyone feels gratified in experiencing mm-hmm. um, then I think that's what is most important like if everyone feels that this is the story they want to tell then you I want to lean into that as my as a game designer mm-hmm. I want to say like what is what is the story your the players at the table want to sell if everyone's okay with that then push that forward
4: okay and as long as what is happening remains something that each player wants to tell like if is they they all have to be on the same page more or less in order for everybody to enjoy it exactly
1: so do we incentivize getting on the same page in some way
5: i think Um, that's pretty necessary i think the a lot of the current i don't know um let's call it a problem with um the the old form of role playing games is that there wasn't enough dialogue between someone running the game and the players at the table like it's a it's a i guess commonly perceived
0: power social imbalance. problem
5: yeah exactly um is that 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 power imbalances um something that needs to be discussed at the table so if we could incentivize Working together, making sure that everyone has a good time, whether you're the GM or a player, um, that is what I think RPGs should strive towards. Um, and, and it's at some. Go ahead, Gar. At... <clears throat> In lacking any
4: other direction to go down, a lot of old games made that power imbalance necessary. Mm-hmm. When we mm-hmm. know now that it.
3: That
4: it wasn't. Mm. Mm. I mean, yes.
1: Broadly speaking, yes. But I think in certain there are certain games in which the the nature of the game as a more where where it had a more competitive tone. You you do need that, um, but you still can't. It it can't become overblown, otherwise it becomes very tedious quite quickly. Um, and it was, I think, a lot of frustration came out of, um, or at least stories I hear about frustrating games are, often include, um, uh, particularly a game master acting way out of bounds for what's perceived as 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 functional at the table by the other
4: players at the time. Right. Um, and which which is likely a consequence of the game not empowering the non-gm players to keep the gm in check like if you make the gm the uber god mm-hmm. nothing's to stop them from being that in, a, in an abusive way
1: do you think anything could stop them from from being that in an abusive way other than advice from i mean can can a game Come out and say, as one of its principles, um, you don't have final say?
3: Yeah, I mean, the player, That's like the GM what... and the players are both, you know, players within the game. The players obviously have less power than the GM. That's because the game gave them less power than the GM. You can give the GM less power too. Like the GM can basically decide to annex more power than you give them. But that's basically going to come down to an issue of people are going to point at the rules and say, you can't actually do that. And it's like, yeah, it's technically rules lawyering, but it's like the rules are kind of what structure the dynamics of the game, power dynamics or otherwise.
4: Well, more often than not, a player... More often than not, that kind of implication of power balance is between the lines of the rules. So it you you have to take the, the you often have to take the game as a whole and figure out what is between the lines, what is it talking around to say, okay, this is the spirit of the game and you're violating it, even though it's not in the letter of the game. staying within the spirit of the game is just as valid as staying within the letter of the game as far as the social contract goes
2: yes S- see our episode on the social contract
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> actually talk about that kind of
2: surprised
3: more. you weren't piping up there Fred that this seems more like something that you would usually be like all over
2: what, talking about violating the spirit of the rules rather than the letter?
3: Oh, I mean, just, you know, the concept I mean, of, beautiful. like, a GM having power over the players and stuff as well. That's something that sometimes you have stuff to say about.
2: I do, but I've kind of said everything before in previous things. Um, I don't know how any of most of that is going to relate to game theory. Well it's it
1: um and well another question I had is do do we incentivize gms like along those lines then too how you know do we do we put carrots at the end of of, of you know put carrots in front of them to lead them down certain paths when we have uh, an idea for the experience we want them to deliver hi, hi.
5: i'm i'm mark and I'm, I'm designing th- a game about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I th- no absolutely
4: I think incentivizing GMs often falls by the wayside because games are often too focused on incentivizing the players and shaping the player experience. It's because the GM experience is fundamentally different in most ways than the player experience.
3: I think it's like it's a
4: superset of the player experience, really.
3: And it's very difficult to incentivize the GM with how the GM is normally set up, though. Like, usually the GM does not have anything that you can incentivize them with. Like, what are you going to give them? Like, a pat on the head? Like, you, you don't have a character, usually, to give experience to or loot or any kind of like narrative benefits because the GM generally is the one that's in charge of creating all those things. Like sometimes you have yeah, like the, the, like the star Wars thing had a thing where they gave like the GM and players like uh, abilities where like you've uh, have like a, a light side or dark side point. I think it was. And basically as the players did stuff, they gave the GM the ability to do more stuff And that actually meant there's a currency the GM can use. So as soon as you have a currency the GM has access to, suddenly there's something you can pay them in. But before that, if you don't have anything to pay them in, then it's really hard to incentivize them without something to incentivize with.
0: Yeah, I think we'll be... can we let Mark talk about the thing that he was talking about that's in his game if he yeah. wants to?
5: That's, that's fine. No, it's I'm I'm cool with. Uh, we'll come back to it. I think Fred and Carr both had something to say. So thanks, Kavor. I think we'll yeah. touch on it. Sorry about that. No, it's good. the only, The only real in the only real existential
4: incentive for the GM is to facilitate the experience for the players. That's the only thing you can't avoid. As far as the GM is concerned, and it, it, like, as far as their their re, re, relation to the game and and their interaction with it, that's 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 the fundamental of it. Like, how far you go beyond that, like, what can you figure out to put on top of that with meta currency or you know other meta mechanics and stuff like that, but the, the GM's fundamental incentive is to facilitate the experience for everybody else
2: and the, the thing I was going to say is I think we should listen to what Mark has to say <laughs> <laughs>
5: so uh, go for it. Um, all right I can I can take it away um, so I, I completely agree with what you're saying uh, about what the role of the gm is um, and i had to look back at what gives me gratification when i am running a game as a gm um, and how do i make sure that that um exists in a game where i'm not running it um, so for me a lot of it was um staying on theme that i could find elements of the game that I could introduce thematically relevant to the story of the game, and having a recurring, persistent storyline that I'm able to lead. Um, And that those were the most gratifying elements for me as a GM. Um, So I tried to design my game in such a way where those thematic elements and those concepts and themes that the table buys into, exist in a some capacity on the table that the GM has access to, where the GM can now say, "Here is this element. Here is this uh, plot hook that you gave me, or here is the answer to a question about the world that you you described, or these are the consequences of the last mission, and they're coming back to affect the story, to affect the the next." aspect of where this is going to lead. Um, And I wanted that as a resource for the the game master to be able to interact with so that it facilitated telling a compelling story. And it helps both the GM and the players to have this resource physically present at the table. Hmm. And so by constraining their choices, you, you
1: you you give them incentive to make those choices more
5: more exciting. Is that sort of the idea? So I've never wanted to use it as a constraint. Like okay. I should never have this as a you can't do this thing because the card says you can't. But have it as a a, a way to tell the story. Uh, I guess more with with increased relevance to what has previously happened or what has previously been defined. So the way that I've Exactly. The way that I've tried to do this is that um, all of these elements are written on cards, um, and the suits of the cards have an intrinsic meaning, as well as whatever's written on the card. So the intrinsic meanings of the suits are vague enough that they can be interpreted in whichever way a GM wants. So uh, if a card relates to um, uh, socializing or people or um, like the the aspect of uh, interacting with other people mm-hmm. that can be that card exists as a spade, no matter what is written on that card. And the mm-hmm. GM can use this as sort of a guiding influence for how they want to tell the story, or mm-hmm. they can say, Oh, what was written on here is um, last mission. They made an enemy and now this enemy is back. Um, and I want that to be a recurring uh not currency, I guess, but a recurring um, element, like a, a a stepping stool that is possible for the GM to use. They don't have to. I don't want them to feel constrained by it. But it's a, a nudge in a direction that I think is gratifying. Hmm. I, I think so, it so, makes so, oh, sense. Go ahead, Catherine.
3: I was going to say, I think it makes sense you almost have to do it in a way similar to that, because the issue is everything that you're describing is something that the GM can just do of their own volition normally anyway.
5: Mm -hmm.
3: Like, what do people get out of being a GM? What makes being a GM fun? It's usually things like, oh, your players were just gushing over this NPC that you created that they talked to. Or you put out something that you created and they love or it's something like a recurring element like you're describing and it's like these are all things the gm can just normally do in a game on their own so it's like it's hard to use it to incentivize them to do anything when they're the one that's holding the stick with the carrot on it and it's like Mm -hmm. um That makes it very hard to control where the carrot goes, doesn't it? You you kind of have to basically remove the stick from their hand by building it into a resource or some other uh, method that they do not have full control over. Otherwise, you can't control it,
5: period. Because
3: they're in full control of
5: it. Correct.
4: So... Um, okay that kind of thing is more of a modern development like and what you're what you're talking about still falls under the realm of the gm's incentive is to provide the experience but the the way that games usually fail in this area is telling gms how to provide the experience like GMs are not told how to realize their incentive
5: mm-hmm.
4: so and the the way it's usually done is limited to you know like setting up mechanically balanced encounters like it, it doesn't reach up to the levels of telling a cohesive story that has arcs and mm. you know any kind of like literature yeah. value to it In yeah i, I agree sets.
1: yeah i i mean i'm i'm specifically calling out something like that in my in my guide chapter like right now you know it's about how how to yeah cohere a narrative like on the fly which yep. is mm-hmm. not easy
4: um, and exactly, but, I've I've got my GM chapter, like, outlined, and, like, at least half of it is storytelling and creative writing.
5: It has nothing to do with mechanics. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the uh, carrot and stick analogy, I was thinking that um, it's definitely that you do the carrot and stick for the player. But as the game designer for the GM, I think what your objective should be is to tell them where they can find sticks and carrots. Because Ah, I think that is the incentive for a a GM, is to have those tools available to them. Um, And if they know where they're coming from, and how to access them, and how to use them properly, that is the, the key to a rewarding game master experience. That's good. That's good, yeah. Great. It
3: might be. I, I'm not sure. Like it. De- it depends almost on teaching the GM not just where the carrots and the sticks are, but also teaching them how to make use of such effectively for themselves. Because like, if you okay. <clears throat> if you basically teach someone, if you push this button, you get a food pellet, and it's like okay. Um. Why would I ever not just match the button over and over and over again? It's like, okay, that might be, be a bit. Of... Yeah, it's like being able to teach them how to effectively use these tools, not just where they are and what they are, but why you would use them and why you wouldn't use them all the time. That's probably the more important lesson to have. and that's kind of tricky sometimes it's easier to just build it in such a way that it become it even if it's not self-evident though it would be nice if you did just kind of teach the lesson through use of it if you could build it in such a way that they basically are herded into basically doing that for themselves just so that they go through the motions and it's like oh, that worked and I enjoyed it. That's That might actually just be easier rather than telling them that it's there. It's actually running them through doing it.
4: Right, because a lot of games have their curates and sticks, but they handle them almost exclusively in the context of the player. Yeah. and And the GM gets left out of that exchange. Or that right tool. and
1: so that, that's part that's part of what I want to bring it up because I, I i'm I'm going through this myself right now I'm, I'm writing the my my guide chapter and I'm trying to figure out like where to place that where that comes up like where that incentive should be to um to encourage the the guide to run the best game they can like where's I, I'm trying to figure out exactly where that is. You know, it's definitely in the fun of seeing seeing the players enjoy the game. That's definitely a huge part of it. And so, like, I think to that end, like, I'm trying to write the guide chapter as a, as a manual for maximum enjoyment and engagement with the game um, and how to lean on what I've created for the players to... To, to do that. So I think that's part of, yeah, well, I'm still working it out.
4: And I think for almost every game, it's advantageous to like, obviously the GM reads all the player facing stuff, but it's, it's usually advantageous for a game to let the players at the GM facing stuff. Because we know from experience that players make better GMs, and GMs make ble- better players. There's there's a feedback loop between the meta roles that heightens both of them.
5: Hmm.
3: Well, yeah. You you know what you enjoy, and you know what the difficulty is, and stuff. So as you do one, you learn more of the other. And yeah. It's not that surprising. That's a good point. Yeah.
4: So okay. Well getting back to ways ways I ways we incentivize. um, my game specifically incentivizes playing the character as it as it is. Like there's leeway for change because characters have to grow and whatnot. But it incentivizes being faithful to the character as it, as it's currently made.
2: Hmm. You know, and how does it do no that? Idea.
4: It does that through, like, there's going to be a thing in the in the in the GM guide about forcing characters into hard choices. Mm-hmm. And if they make the, they'll be more rewarded for following their character than taking the uncharacteristic path.
0: Hmm.
1: And so, is that rewarded with experience points?
4: That's that's. Yeah it, it it turns. It's a way of turning what happens in the in the narrative into the character point currency. Okay. Without limiting it to okay, you killed this, this, and this, this, and they're worth X, Y, and Z, so that's what you get. Right. Okay. Um cool. and I also have a specific um, like guidance for metering out the character points. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they're supposed to happen at a certain rate, but they're also only supposed to happen, or they're only supposed to be, also supposed to be given out at various narrative checkpoints. Okay. So, like, you can go through an adventure, quote unquote, and maybe you'll get a few points along the way, but once the narrative is finished, that's when you get most of them. I see. Because the game is about the narrative, not anything specific that happens within the narrative. Right. And, oh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I have a thing in my um, merits and flaws that's called a mystery. And this comes back to incentivizing the GM. Uh The way a mystery works is the player takes this flaw and they put a value on it, but they don't decide what it is. The GM decides what it is and can introduce it at any time.
5: Hmm.
4: So
1: <clears throat> what, what structures do you have? Does the, the GM get, so there's a point value attached to it? Does that give the GM like a certain amount of points to mess with like a like a, a a story build for lack of a better term
4: the 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 point value pretty much establishes the scope and the scale of whatever the thing is, okay, so a one point thing is theoretically worth one tenth of a ten point thing okay so you know a one point thing might be. Is going to be something pretty minor, but like a ten-point thing could be, "Oh, you're the long-lost bastard son of the king who just died." Mm. Okay. So it's something that something about the character that not even the player knows,
1: right? Interesting.
4: For and there, there, it's a way for the player to surrender some value of that character into the GM's control.
1: And therefore into the story. Yeah.
4: Okay. Right. Hmm. And what GM doesn't like messing with the characters. That's flat out what that's for.
0: It has the problem that it's opt-in, but
4: <laughs> you can mess with the <laughs> characters in <and> other ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I I think have we
2: exhausted this topic. I think we have.
4: Yeah, I don't,
2: I don't have anything else to say.
4: Yeah, I think we stayed pretty much on the GM side. We didn't really get into the oh, discussing the new player
0: incentives. Yeah, it's true.
1: Well, I mean, for me, that that's actually, I mean, it it it's this. It sounds almost too simple, but just in, give. The players, their rewards for the things you want them to do in the game. And too often, I think, games fall into the trap of not having... Well, this is this is how it relates to your first principles as well, because that should be a, a fundamental aspect of the experience, is the way in which you want the players to act and the, the kind of narratives you want the players to t- t- uh, tell and talk about. And if well, you place if you if you for example give specific instances of what grants the currency for advancement um you should definitely expect the players to care about that thing the most
5: Mm -hmm. and even
4: if you don't whatever you give the care the currency for that's that becomes what players want to do yeah
3: it's not just that though Like the one thing I think I would stress is something that came up recently, but it was a good question was how do you try to lure hiring someone who already works for one of your competitors or something? And the, the thing behind that is you don't offer them more pay or anything so much. Like you can do that, but it's not a guaranteed way to draw their attention you offer them more authority to do what their job is like if they want to be i don't know let's say that it's an artist or something for like a company like a video game company or tv program or something just saying, okay, I'll pay you more to do the same thing isn't good enough. What you want to do is offer them to be the creative director of their own show. Like, you, if you have competent people, then the things they're most interested in is being able to do their thing better. So it's like, just giving them experience and gold in-game, that's not really what they really want in a lot of cases a lot of the time what they really want that will really push them forwards is having an effect on the outcome like if you reward them with essentially less railroading and so that they the choices they make have a greater impact that will get your best players happier and it'll get like the players that aren't the best they will become better players by the nature of doing so
4: yeah employees don't necessarily want money especially creative types they want autonomy and freedom and impact
1: yeah that those are i think all good thing i think those are very close to what players in an rpg often want
3: Well, Mm -hmm. it's creative medium. Like, even if you have someone who's not super creative playing like an RPG, they, they still have creative tendencies to them. They still want to do more. They want to have like a bigger impact on the world. It's not just I want to suplex the dragon. It's the fact that I was able to actually suplex a dragon. I was able to do something out of what I would have thought normally possible. It's like this isn't, there is no die roll that tells me I can do this. Right. You actually gave me control to change what happened. That's a big deal.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really great point. Yeah. I think that, I think that may be even, that may be a better catalyst for stories, at least rather than a strict uh, experience point incentive. You know, actual, narrative control
0: yeah the problem with offering that is well, it implies it's not there in the first place but that is a entirely problem that isn't as bad as i may phrased it i guess is what i mean
1: you mean like well, it, it's it's implying that they don't have it to, in, in the first place
0: yeah like they have it's something they have to earn
1: mm. but it's it, well, it, That's the
4: main concession of old-school gaming, is that the players didn't have any narrative agency other than Mm -hmm. declaring their characters' actions. It's one of the emerging tenets of, quote-unquote, modern game design is empowering the players in more ways.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: Not Mm. to give them narrative control, but at least some kind of narrative influence. Yeah, so that they can
2: have more direct influence over the narrative and it becomes more of a collaborative thing. Mm
3: -hmm, I think it's something that we've kind of learned in general over the years that we've run into. Like, you've probably had a GM at some point in your gaming experience where your characters do all this stuff and it doesn't matter. It's like pure railroading and it doesn't matter what characters are present. It doesn't matter if you completely killed off the entire party, it replaced them with a completely different party. Nothing changes. And it's like, we've learned that players don't actually like being read to from a book. They, If they're playing the game, they want to impact what happens in the game. Otherwise, it's not really a game. You're just reading them a bedtime story. <laughs> And the next level of that
4: is players will accept just the traditional like flat kind of role playing where everything that happens just happens and their characters were there were involved because of just being there. But the next level of that is shaping the story around the characters, tying them to it. Mm -hmm. That's a a whole other level or dimension of enjoyment that can be had out of the story is if the characters are actually relevant to it.
1: I think that that isn't that precluded by the characters having agency within it? I mean, wouldn't you... Or are you saying, like, an even deeper tie than just that, that agency that Kat was talking about?
4: I'm I'm talking about, like, the premise of any pre-produced adventure module is that any characters can be dropped into it and it will happen. I'm talking about, like... You take Keep on the Borderlands, and oh, this PC is the nephew of the blacksmith, tying, like, directly tying the characters into the scenario. Or this PC grew up here and knows all the stuff that happened.
3: Not but every until mod- the
4: time they left.
3: I'd say not every module is like that, though, or at least, like, the basic overarching setup for say or say like my game is set up in such a way that it's technically a module but i'm trying to teach gms that you don't have to strictly follow things in the same way like you can actually let the players completely alter the very nature of what the storyline is like just make sure that it's very broad like there's some big major plot points that tend to happen but Give room for the players to maneuver within that. Like, this is the starting point. This is probably what's going to happen if uh, they don't do anything. If they do try to do something, here are some options to think about what they might end up doing. Like, work within the fact that they will do stuff that you don't expect. It's like, if you make a big villain, expect them to either one shot kill the villain out of combat that you weren't expecting and you know just teleporting them away is not going to make them happy or they're going to wind up befriending the villain or turning the villain into their their uh minion or one of the characters uh spouses or something weird that is like you just did what because that's what they're gonna do Well,
4: (laughs) well Yeah, that's good advice, but that's separate from what I'm trying to say, which is that the the next level of RPG story crafting is the one where the party as a unit is not interchangeable.
3: Oh, yeah. I was just saying that... Like, making the story
4: about these characters and not just some characters.
3: Yeah, I was only just saying that not all modules have to be that way like that's stereotypically how they have been presented but i think it's a better idea to actually teach gms how to go beyond that like it it doesn't even have to be fully into the story is purely revolving around the characters it's just making the characters matter like when they do something make it actually change something in the world if they decide to do something something happens
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and that kind of that kind of guidance is almost completely non-existent within the hobby like of how to make the story about these characters that are sitting in front of you
1: yeah, there's some, there's some advice on YouTube, but it's, it's few and far between like that specific, like how to make the story about these characters. Like that's, that's tough to find. I mean, that's the, that's the main thrust of my, my game is making the story about these characters because it's all about like these characters have been chosen by fate to be characters in an RPG basically. Yeah. And you know, that's it, the whole conceit of it is like, you're building the story around these characters because they're i'm defining them as special beforehand
3: yeah same it, way online yeah. which means that yeah, exactly this is independently developed between us like we had mm-hmm. both been settled on this before we ever met so oh yeah 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 this is this means that there are actually people that are looking into this and there's probably more than just us that are doing this so it's mm-hmm. i think there's going to be like another big uh impactful wave in the next few years it's just everybody's in the design phase right now of trying to figure out how to do this and then we're probably going to see like a half dozen fairly notable games all come out trying to do this at about the same time yeah and that's going to be a big deal
1: yeah yeah i mean yeah mark's game is the same way because it's like um well you you explain why because it's all about like, handing the players a lot of the story and a lot of influence over what happens.
5: Absolutely. So, that's what makes it fun.
3: Mm-hmm. Don't explain mm-hmm. it! Tell them why! Tell them how awesome it <laughs> <laughs> That makes me slap you.
5: <laughs> the, the one masses of person that might listen. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's... Uh, it's just the way that you construct the uh the game from the very beginning the session 0 is about everyone sitting down together talking about what experiences they want to have and answering a set of questions that that create the space that you get to play in so there's tons of uh, yeah. agency from what kind of story you want to tell and gives a lot of direction for where you can explore so
3: yeah,
4: yeah and, I, th- I think, and, that, and, next, it, I think that next. I think that next wave. <laughs> Hold on! Oh, go. And,
1: no, I just want to remark about Mark's game. Is that, um, is that when I try it when we went through that process, like we ended up Jonathan and I ended up with a world we we were so stoked to actually play. It. <laughs> so it worked. Like it, it's it it was functional. Like that 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 part of the game like these 10 questions that would have like a a little follow-up question are perfectly functional in, in teasing out from the players what they want in a game. And that's something that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do as well. Um,
4: Yeah. It's, it's a powerful tool to know what the players want. Yeah. And I think that next wave of design that Kat's talking about Mm-hmm. Is not only going to do this, but also take the finally take the second step towards acknowledging that role playing is about the story and not so much about being a game.
1: Yeah, it's less. It's less about being the game for sure.
4: I, think I still they're... think the game's
1: important, and the games to me, there I, I enjoy the game aspect of it.
3: Um i think it was originally really just about the game it's not that it was always about the narrative because at the very start like it was basically converted from a war game it's that we are moving towards recognizing that a lot of the reason why people like to play these games Mm -hmm. is the role playing aspect and we're just starting to realize what we can do with that
1: yeah and how to how to effectively set up these these you know how to how to mechanize it and how to how to effectively incentivize the the sort of uh progress of behavior that we're looking at you know by giving the players like here you get to play with this you know it's this here's an outlined box of thing you can do um and it's it's more far reaching than you're used to and so yeah we,
4: we yeah. we've always known how to mechanize events we have yet to fully embrace that role-playing is a storytelling medium
1: yeah yeah like a storytelling medium exactly like graphic novels or tv or movies it's the same thing
4: Uh uh-huh yeah it's part of that conceptual space
1: yeah completely agree with that Mm -hmm. yeah
4: okay
2: okay
4: i disagree on principle
3: just because everybody else is agreeing Oh my gosh, cat,
2: get
0: out of here. Nice button. Okay, so I think think that covered the last thing we wanted to approach on this topic. Does anybody have any objections?
3: I mean, we said we were done (laughs) and then we went for another 15 minutes.
0: Yes, that's why I want to make sure we're actually done this time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. Good you night, night listen.
1: listeners. Thanks okay, for listening. Wait. Please uh, write us uh, a review on iTunes. It doesn't suck. I mean, just give us five
5: stars. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: yeah five, five stars.
4: stars.
5: <laughs> <laughs> They're, They're great. Yeah,
1: yeah. light
4: of the world, tell us that we're worth something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no,
1: How that's telling you to the dumpster fire. Feed people to the dumpster fire
3: be okay if he gave a one-star review but actually said okay so all the people that went to look at the bad review this is awesome listen to it anyway because <laughs> I have actually seen that before on Steam
4: a total bait and
0: switch review okay I I don't care if you're po- I don't care if you're positive or negative although if you are negative uh, I'd prefer if it was actually for re- for reasons that have to do with our content. <laughs>
2: Yeah, please give us a review that's reasonable because there's an algorithm that is influenced by that review. I know Kat might not know that, but you know.
3: I I, yeah. I know there is, but nah.
0: Yeah, nah. Yeah. There's okay. the way we have enough of a fan base for the Let's algorithm. Face it, we're not, not we're not
3: we're not getting rich off this. I, I know, but
0: still we're we're losing money on this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. Yes, rather <laughs> significant. Don't worry about it. Just anyway, listener, anyway. have a good night. Mm-hmm. Have uh, a good sleep night. Sleep well. Good night. We're watching you. No, we're not. While you sleep. I'm on your yeah, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.